Welcome back, everyone, to the Canadian Jewish Schmooze. I'm Michael Freeman. And I'm Alex Rose. And today on the show, we are going to be dedicating the second half of this episode to our brand new CJN podcast, Kol Avram. It's a long-form, in-depth interview podcast hosted by Avram Rosenzweig. Um, so stick around and you will be able to hear a little snippet, a, a preview of the first episode where Avram chats with a, a Syrian refugee who learned to love Israel. Alex, what are we going to be chatting about before that, though? First, we're going to be talking about the big Jewish news in the international world, which is Trump's peace plan and different responses to it. I feel like there's been so much news in the, in the coming south of the border that the peace plan now feels so old after Iowa and the State of the Union and all this. But and impeachments it's, that are happening I guess, later today. But it's still big news, this peace plan. Uh, and so to help understand a little bit about what uh, a, a, an everyday Israeli might think we brought on, if I may say, an everyday Israeli. <laughs> uh, Terry Podolsky is a graphic designer here at the CJN. She's been in Canada for 10 years. Before that, you lived in Israel for 18 years, you were saying. Um, Terry, when, when did you move to Israel? In 1992. And uh, where'd you move from? From Moscow. Did you like the move? Were you happier in Israel than in Moscow? Uh, first, I need to tell probably what were the circumstances. So... I came uh, as a part of youth project, which is called Narev. Narev is abbreviation in Hebrew of uh, uh, young people are making Aliyah before their parents. So I was 15 and I came to Israel to study in high school. And after that, I could decide if I want to make Aliyah and stay and or I could come back to Moscow. So after finishing high school, I stayed. I was very happy to make Aliyah. I did whatever every Israeli did. I served in the army. I I studied in the Academy of Design. I I worked. I I married, had my kid. But after that, I moved here. Nice. Well, we're so. very happy to have you uh, both on this show today and in general at the CJN. Terry actually is the one who designs all of the uh, logos for the CJN Podcast Network. So if you've seen any of them, and if you're listening to this, you have, uh, we can thank you, Terry. Thank you so much for that. Oh, I'm happy to help. Uh, so today we are going to be chatting about the uh, quote-unquote deal of the century. Um, this is Donald Trump's grand Middle East peace plan. Uh, in the last issue of the Canadian Jewish News, we have um, a, a lot of opinions and, and analysis of this plan. So uh, we brought Terry on to kind of kind of ground things. Um, before we get into that, uh, we will, for those who are unfamiliar with the particulars of it, give a little uh, a little rundown of the, the main key points that are part of this deal. And actually, because I'm just getting over a bit of a cold and my throat's a little bit sore, uh, I'm going to ask Alex here, <laughs> if you could, I've, to, to read, read the prominent key points, Alex, if you could just summarize what's important. What, what do our listeners need to know about it? Yeah, sure. I think uh, probably one of the most important things to know about the deal is that Israel would retain security control over all the land that would include a Palestinian state, so the land in the West Bank and uh, Gaza along the border with uh, Sinai. So even though the Palestinians would have their own system of government throughout their state, Israeli forces would still be allowed to patrol and exert their will in the area. Um, 
That's, which is basically w- what, what it, it is, is right now. Yeah. Yeah. The, so nothing changes on that front. Um, and the size of the state in the West Bank, um, it would be about 70 to 80% of the land there now, which is smaller than offers in the past, for one, and uh, much smaller than the land that the Palestinians want. And Israel would also retain control of the settlements. So they would, you know, enact Israeli law there and, and provide them security, which is means that the potential Palestinian state wouldn't necessarily be that connected because they'd have all these settlements in the middle of it. Um, and the plan gives the Israelis and Palestinians four years to accept these borders if they both agree to it, which, you know, they won't. No. <laughs> um, and it includes a freeze on all new settlements during those four years. Which, because they're not going to accept it, doesn't really mean yeah. much. So Israel will yeah. probably continue to build settlements. Yeah. So that's, that's th- those are, so those are the big takeaways from this plan. Uh, quite famously now, uh, we know that tr- the Trump administration did not consult the Palestinian side when crafting this. Palestinians are basically either ignoring it outright, if not protesting against it. Um, so the, the we should just say off the top that the odds of this happening are, I would say, zero. Terry, do you agree? Totally. I think this whole peace plan looks more like a some kind of a marketing campaign than a real uh, something that's going to work out for both sides. Gotcha. So, what is in in, in from your perspective, uh, or from either in your opinion or from people who you know back in Israel, what is the general reaction to the plan? Um, I I would say that. I don't think that uh, people actually look at it as plan per se. They just uh, they're they're not now. My friends in Israel are more uh, interested what's going to happen in the primary, what's going to happen in the election, and how this plan may affect the chances of Netanyahu to win or lose the election than than the actual plan itself. Because everybody understands it's not going to work, nobody's going to accept it, and uh, it's just another plan that came along, like the plans before, and nothing happened to it. Does this plan hurt or help Netanyahu's odds of re-election in, uh, in the spring? According to this plan, I think he needs to act very quickly and, and claim more land. Ba- basically, I think that there is really... Uh, society is divided, very divided into left and right, and we all almost don't have a center there. So with this plan, continuing with the settlements, and uh, we will need, like now, the Israeli military force to protect them. Uh, many people will, may not like it and um, may see it as a turning point for, for Netanyahu, but he still has lots of supporters among the among the settlers and um, really religious Zionists, so so I don't know how it will turn out for him. I know also there was um, a bit of controversy because I think the American ambassador to Israel, David Friedman, said once the plan was unveiled, like basically gave permission to for Israel to annex whatever land they wanted yes. and they'd have support. But then Jared Kushner a little bit later said they shouldn't do anything until after the elections. So I mean, what's interesting is we have some analysis in our paper. It's a couple um, of articles taken from the Times of Israel, and they're both saying how this kind of has turned into a disaster for Netanyahu, what seemed at first like a victory, like Americans supporting this like plan um, that would give him the ability 
and cover to take whatever land he wanted. And all of a sudden, he doesn't have the opportunity to do that. And also, his base really doesn't like the plan because it just endangers the settlements. And they don't want a Palestinian state at all. They want to keep making more settlements. So it, Exactly. He's he's in a very tough place because, like you're saying, he's, um, what he's trying to do now in the elections, he needs more people who are now kind of a center he needs to sway them to his side in order to win because he would never win the people who are true who are true left they would never vote for him but the people who are in the middle they may and that's what he's trying to do but with this situation it's kind of difficult for him if he does something with with uh, with uh, getting more land or like you said annexing more land then the people in the center may not like it the people in the in the right may like it but like you said in general they don't like this plan at all be- because they wouldn't they don't want the two state solution in general mm-hmm. so he's in a tough position what is and and what is your personal opinion what's your personal take on on this plan i think like any previous plan it's not really a plan and um, nothing is going to work till the leaders of, of both sides, Israelis and Palestinians, are ready to, to accept anything. Because people who live in Israel or, or in the Palestinian territory, they all want peace. Nobody wants war. Everybody wants normal life. But the leaders, for their own political interests, they want to, to remain in the status quo because, because then they don't need to face other problems. So they don't need to to tend to social issues like poverty or or problem in the, in the medical industry or, or other or, stuff or personal problems like say if you're I don't know indicted on uh, well, crimes exactly, of corruption exactly that <laughs> exactly then then now everybody is preoccupied with their existence and how we are going to defend ourselves and not usually. Not, not really to think what, what the real problem in, in our society are. So you were there, I mean, between the time you got there in 92 and left in 2010, there was Oslo and Camp David and then the Entifada. So you went through a lot of like... Yes, and nothing happened. But were you <laughs> optimistic and were the people you knew optimistic maybe in the late 90s around then? Like, did you, did people think, because I know I was in um, Israel and I visited Bethlehem when I was there mm-hmm. in November and our guide said his family moved back from Jordan because they were sure peace was I th- imminent. I think that when Rabin was the, prim, uh, the prime minister before he, before he was murdered, people were optimistic. But once he got he got assassinated, those talks were buried and everything, and, and I think everybody understood that it's not going to happen and nothing will happen f- forward. In general, people are tired. My friends are more um, more concerned about how they are going to make a living, <laughs> or with their day to day problems than with this uh, with the general peace plans. Something else you mentioned to me earlier before we started recording was about how both sides see themselves as the victims. Um, I know Palestinians, I think, maybe have a greater claim, I would argue, to being the victims, although certainly Israelis also, uh, Jews in general, historically with good Mm -hmm. reason, see themselves as victims of everything. Uh, And Israel is kind of that makes Israel the one thing that they can really grab onto. But even Israelis today still do suffer, uh, you know, random acts of terrorism. And so it creates a sense of victimhood. So everyone's like, well, what about me? What are you going to do to 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 rectify this for me and, and mm-hmm. my family and things like that? Um, I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit more about that beyond what I just 
summarized. <laughs> oh, your, your summarize is pretty great, but if somebody from our listeners wants uh, a deeper look at it, uh, there was a very good article in English published in December 14, uh, last year in um, Aretz. It's an Israeli newspaper that you can read online in English as well. So it was a, an article about um, how maybe this uh, Israeli-Palestinian conflict can be solved solved from the psychological point of view. So there was a st- uh, there was a study about how basically uh, people view- viewing themselves as a as a victim in a conflict can can help solve it. So when you have a conflict, if either if it's between the two states or two nations or just two people. It's not only about who is a uh, who is a victor in this conflict, but also about who is a victim. And in in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, both sides are um, competing on this victim role. So Palestinians want to be recognized uh, as the biggest victim of this whole conflict, and Israelis too. And when they're both will be able to accept each other as the victim, then maybe these peace talks have a future. So Alex, how long do you think it's going to be until both sides realize that they're they're victims and uh, acknowledge that? Trick trick question. It's a trick question. (laughs) I mean, uh, yeah. There's never going to be peace. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, just thinking like for all the fact that people want there to be peace, I think like Israel... You know, the situation's pretty settled. There haven't been nearly as many terrorist attacks as earlier in the millennium. And and for the most part, people are able to get on with their day-to-day lives. They um, maybe, notwithstanding Iran, they probably don't even feel too much pressure from around them. Like, they have, they're on better terms with most of the Arab countries around them. And there's just, like, not pressure for them to make peace and as much as they might want it. In the abstract, if they have to give something up that's worth more to them than the the prospect of peace, I just don't see you know, especially with a divided political climate. And then from the Palestinians' point of view, they'd have to give up, uh, I guess, their desire to return to their, what they call their homeland, and that might not be worth peace for them. I think maybe the younger generation, maybe that's changing. Some of them might just want to live their lives as best they can and don't care as much where that is, as long as they have, like, full autonomy and democratic rights. Um, but really, I think, like, the sides just have to give up too much more. There, there cannot be peace without compromising. You always have to give something in order to come to the middle ground. And right now, probably the both. I'm I'm talking about the the leaders of both sides are are not ready for giving up the territories, the settlements, and everything. I guess the only reason Israel would want to do something now is if they're worried the international climate could change because things are going pretty well for Israel. Yeah, things are going fine. Maybe and if Bernie the... wins the presidency, maybe <laughs> they'll see. they're trying to hedge their bets against that and make a plan while they have a friend in the well even but even the 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 response from the wider arab world qatar saudi arabia um like you were saying before they're they're lukewarm to okay with this they they're kind of i think the arab league officially uh came out against it but did they but nonetheless specific countries uh have said we'll we'll examine this Mm -hmm. which is maybe just a kind of way of quietly rolling their eyes while they ignore it or but but it's not uh an explicit condemnation and and it does signal like you were saying there's a shift away from this whole thing because they're thinking like w- w- we've spent so much time and money on this 
<laughs> is it really worth is it really worth keeping this up maybe we'll just you know throw out a, a burn the jews every once in a while and that's <laughs> enough i don't know it's, it's it's so much commitment these days i think also for all those arab countries it's much easier to give to give uh, some money for the, for this plan to fund it and say okay deal with it deal with it we don't want to to do anything with it we, ju- we will just finance it yeah. so well, we'll see what happens, although the answer, like we said off the top, will probably be very little, uh, at least a result of this peace plan. But you know what? If for whatever miraculous reason, Trump is the one who brings peace to the Middle East, oh man, will his Wikipedia page change in like five years. <laughs> like the way we remember this man will be totally different. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think we've entered that timeline. Uh, Terry, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thank you for inviting me. I very much appreciate your uh, your insights. And right now we are going to play for you an excerpt, a little, a clip, a, a preview, although it's not really a preview because you can listen to it right now, of Kol Avram, the third officially launched podcast from the CJN Podcast Network. Listeners of the show may remember when Avram was on a few months ago. Um, That's right. We discussed his, uh, his own podcast career. He runs his own podcast uh, called Hat Radio, and he's worked in radio for many years before that. Uh, a true a true veteran. The guy knows what he's doing. He knows how to interview. As you'll hear very shortly. Yeah. Without further ado, enjoy a excerpt from the first episode of Cole Avram. The fascinating thing about you, my friend, as I'm sure you know about yourself, uh, is that you're a very courageous man. Uh, Abu Dandachi is from Syria. He would be considered a Syrian refugee here in Canada. And he is very vocal about human rights, and he's very vocal about the Jewish people and Israel in a most positive way. If you were to go onto Google and you would do a search on Abu Dandachi, D-A-N-D-A-C-H-I, you would find a plethora of articles, interviews. You've even written a book, haven't you? Yes, a long time ago. Yeah, we're going to talk about that. Um, Really reflecting your courage in coming out on the side of the Jewish people and on the side of Israel. Uh, you, a couple statements that you made over the last few years is, because of Israel's humanity, I'm convinced any issues we have with them can be resolved. And that was after you saw the way the Israelis treated um, Syrians who were injured during the Absolutely. war. Right? Absolutely. Another statement you said, in Saudi Arabia, I was taught that Jews are treacherous. Jews tried to kill Muhammad, that they're a source of never-ending enmity, and that Jews are an evil entity who forever has to be feared and fought. But you didn't accept that in your heart. You didn't accept that in your soul. Oh, well, when you're in uh, the Arab world, you pretty much don't question your assumptions. Yeah. The thing about people, uh, by the way, I commend you on your research, by the way. Yeah, you've, thank you've, you. You've obviously prepared very well. Yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> um, the thing is that uh, sometimes you get taught things. And you don't question your assumptions until you need to. Now, I'll tell you honestly, when I was in Saudi Arabia, you know, okay, I, I, wasn't, very, I wasn't very religious. I kind of resented the, the, the Wahhabi restrictions, but not more than uh, any, any, anybody else. I just took these things for granted, the things that every Arab would assume, that Syria and Israel were forever going to be enemies. They, the Israelis took the Golan, you know, the Golan was Syrian, the Palestinians are a wronged people, etc., etc. I was actually, you know, I was actually very, look, I looked very favorable, 
favorably on Hezbollah and Hassan Nasrallah. I right. saw George Galloway was a hero. Yes, yes. That's what I thought. And you would. It makes sense. Well, the thing is, these kind of assumptions don't get challenged until life throws challenges at you. So here I am. It's uh, 2000, 2011, 2012. Syria is falling apart. The people who we thought were supposed to be the holders of the banners of pan-Arabism, Hezbollah, and the, uh, uh, all these other groups, they were coming to Syria to kill us, to kill people who were opposed to, to, to the regime. Yes. The people who we thought our friends turned out to be our enemies, sectarian, bloody uh, terrorists. And then I'm sitting there, 2013, uh, in, uh, in my hotel room in Tartus on the coast of Syria, and then I start to read these stories about the Israeli army helping Syrians, wounded Syrians on the Golan. Where and did you read the stories? On, online. Okay. Online. Okay. Uh, I can't remember exactly where it was. It might have been Facebook. It might have been uh, Twitter. Um, and then I hear about uh, Israel aid, you know, organizations going into Jordan, Israeli citizens going yeah. into Jordan and providing aid to Syrian refugees in Jordan. And I'm thinking to myself, this is impossible. Yeah. No way, because in the Middle East, you don't help your enemy. If you get shot in Syria before a hospital will treat you, they'll ask you, how did you get shot? Who shot you? Really? If it was the army, they won't treat you. They'll tell you, go away. We don't want anything to do with you. Really. And that is, and that is because? They, the doctors don't want to get into trouble. The doctors don't want to get into trouble. If you were shot by one of the uh, opposition groups, yeah, they'll treat you and it's fine, and you'll 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 be a hero. He, you'll be a hero. So it's good to be shot by the opposition. <laughs> yes, yes. If you want to be wounded, I'm sorry. If you if if you want to get uh, hospital treatment, yeah. lie and say that you were shot by the opposition, yes. by the terrorists, you know, by the uh, the bad know, guys, the bad guys. Yeah, yeah, you know the so yeah. It's uh, I mean in the Middle East, you don't one doesn't really help one's enemies. And that's what I thought. You know, the Israelis were the enemies. Why in God's name would they? I mean, first of all, they're taking a big risk. Letting in Syrians who could be God knows where, you know, coming in into their hospitals, into their uh, medical tents, among among their people. I mean, Syrians were being treated in the north of Israel. That's correct. And some, yes. of the finest, some of the finest doctors in the world were not just giving them basic treatment. They were giving them... Um, like advanced surgery, if advanced need surgery. Be, yeah. People who had their faces blown off and limb replacements. What better medical care could you possibly ask for? Millions and millions of dollars by some of the best in the, some of the best hospitals in Israel, by some of the best doctors in the world. Right. You know, being being given to to, to to Syrian refugees and why it just it just it just, it just baffled me. And one day, this was after I came to. This was after I moved to Turkey. This was in 2014, sometime 2014. Mm -hmm. Benjamin Netanyahu paid a visit to wounded Syrians on the Golan, and the reaction of the what passed for the Syrian opposition at the time, yes. when there was still something called the Syrian opposition, was absolutely ridiculous. They put out a statement in English saying that we condemn this. Uh, Netanyahu is uh, exploiting our wounded. Syria and Israel is always going to be enemies. You know, you've usurped the goal. And I was so furious. I was so absolutely furious. And that was one of my first uh, blog posts that I made. You were furious because? This was idiotic. Why? This is what I said in my blog post. I, I, I addressed it to the Syrian National Coalition. I told them, why can't you just say thank you? Why is it so hard for you to say thank you? These people are helping us when nobody else is. We are being turned away from Jordan. We are being turned away from, from, from Lebanon. You can't even get medical treatment in your own country in, 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 in Syria. And the Israelis are going out of their way 
to give us we can we couldn't ask for more so why can't you just say thank you and who's going to trust you in the future who what what kind of who's going to want to ally with you syrian opposition yeah. if you can't even say thank you to people who are helping you when they don't even need to help you nobody could have ever blamed israel if they had just shut the border put up a big wall and said you know what we don't want anything to do with this syria your problems are your own don't come anywhere near us could anybody have blamed israel Nobody right. could have blamed them one bit, and yet that is not what the Israelis did. What was the response to your blog? Well, they uh, took down their statement. I don't know whether it was a response to, 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 to what I wrote, but I think they realized after a few days that it was pretty stupid, what they said. So they, 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 took, they took it down. So, so, it so down. Ab- Abu, you're sitting in your hotel room, and, and let's say for the sake of drama, <laughs> you start off that morning believing that the Israelis are evil and that Jews have horns and we're awful people intent upon killing every Muslim. And then you read this online report, and again, this is a bit dramatic, I'm sure, um, and it challenges your assumptions, like you said before. So, so my question to you is, what led up to that challenge? How did you allow yourself to change your mindset? Because a lot of people would read that report and they would say, oh, those Israelis, those Jews, you know, like you said before, they're taking advantage of this situation. So what, what happened in your life, sort of the dominoes, that fell in order for you to change your assumptions? That's a very good question, because you're not assuming that there was a St. Paul on the road to Damascus moment, a sudden moment of revelation. It doesn't work that way. What you just asked me was exactly correct. What was the sequence of events that that eventually led me to think the way that I did? You're talking about my entire country was falling apart. The values that I had been brought up on, the values that I had depended on to see me through life were failing me. There was a big void there. The things that I thought were up, were down, where were left, were right, two plus two did not equal four. You know, all the assumptions that I had before were all open to question. The kind of things that I thought, I mean, my country was falling apart. The values that uh, I thought made Syria's, Syrian people such, so, such a wonderful people, and individually Syrians are wonderful people. Right. But for some reason, put us in a group, as a society, we failed. Mm-hmm. As a society, Syria failed. You know, it wasn't all totally our fault, but uh, it was what it was. And then you have the Israelis who are nice and secure. They don't need to help. They don't need to expose themselves to any risk at all. And yet they are expending so much, so many resources and putting themselves at risk to helping, to helping people who they know view them as enemies. Yes. You got to ask yourself, why would they do that? Why would they do that? Why is it that Syria is a hellhole, a failed country where you won't even help your enemy? You won't even help people who are not aligned with you 100%. And yet Israel is safe and secure. I mean, can you? I always tell people this. This is a realization that, 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 I, that, I, that, I, that I had. This is what I tell people. If the Syrian army had been one quarter as moral as this Israeli army, there would not have been a single Syrian refugee. Not one. Yes. Now, that realization is that why? Could you imagine an Israeli soldier doing to Israeli cities what the Syrian army did to Syrian cities? Yes. Impossible. It would never happen. It would be beyond imagination. Why is that? Why is it that we, the world is accepting that Syrian, the Syrian army can be so barbaric towards, not just towards Syrians, for years they were barbaric before, before, towards other Arabs. The Syrian army invaded Jordan. The Syrian army invaded Lebanon. They committed a lot of atrocities. Well, Assad and his father 
dropped chemical exactly. uh, weapons or chem- chemicals on, on their own people. Yes, yes. In Huma, I think it was? Uh, well, it, Hama wasn't chemical weapons. Hama was in 82, okay. where he pretty much uh, obliterated uh, a large part of the of the, of the the city. And uh, Bashar al-Assad dropped chemical weapons on a place called Ruta, yeah. which was a suburb of uh, Damascus. And actually, it was that event that actually led me to leave Syria. Yeah, that, that was when I decided the country, the country is just going to, he's falling apart, it's just getting crazier every day. I just thought that's it. That's that's, that's so, it. But Abud, what was it in your life, and what is it in your soul that uh, allowed for you to make those dramatic changes in well, your who, perceptions and your life? I think it would be. You're asking me why would a Syrian look favorably upon Israelis? How could any Syrian not look favorably upon? But Israelis? they don't. Most, most don't. How do we know that? I can't tell you for sure. <laughs> okay. I can't tell you for sure because right now you can't just go and get a census of Syrians. Syrians are. In Europe, they're in North America, they're in the Arab world. Right now, most Syrians, their life has been turned upside down. They've been refugees for the past four or five years. They're just trying to survive. They're just trying to get along. But I hear anecdotes. I hear stories about Syrians who, when they meet Israelis, they're so grateful to them. It's not just the Israeli army. Do you remember that massive, massive wave of, uh, of refugees that entered Europe? The first place they would go to is the Balkans. Mm-hmm. They would get on boats from Turkey into Greece. And who would they find? They would find Israel. They would find Arabic speakers. I mean, you're a refugee. You're throwing yourself at the mercy of a strange continent. How afraid are you going to be? How anxious are yes. you going to be? And the first thing you see is an Arabic speaker with food and clothing and advice and uh, medical aid. Do you know what a massive, massive boost that would be to someone that the first thing you'd see is somebody welcoming you and helping you and telling you things are going to be okay this is what you need to do i mean it's uh, it's just it's just amazing it's just absolutely amazing i don't know if you know this or not but when we were growing up I- i'm 60 years old you're almost 60 you're 44 <laughs> right 44 yeah. when i was growing up uh, as a youngster i remember the six-day war as a, young, a, a teenager i remember the yom kippur war and so on and so forth. We considered our greatest enemy was Syria. Exactly. Exactly. And the reason we considered it that way was because you would look at the end of the war and the return of the POWs. Either they were dead or they were mangled. Um, they were tortured very, very badly. And if you would ask most Jews, okay, of Jordan, of Egypt, of Syria, who do you hate the most? It would be the Syrians. Absolutely. I've been told that. I've been told that, yeah. I've been told by an Israeli friend that the worst fate that could befall an Israeli soldier would be to fall into the hands of the Syrians. That's right. Yeah. Well, Absolutely. Yeah. What's, your, what's your perception of that? Oh, I don't, I, do not, uh, I don't doubt that for a minute. The Jordanian army is much more professional. It's, one, it's the most professional uh, Arab army. Now, the Egyptians weren't as bloodthirsty as the Syrian army. The Syrian army was very savage. It's always had that reputation. They trained them to be savage. They like, uh, uh, they're com- the, I remember seeing a, f- uh, uh, a TV clip once of how they trained the commandos, how they bite into raw chicken, you know, just show how tough they are. You know, in the Syrian, Syrian army, that's, that's, that's the way they treat them. There's no mercy to the enemy. Um, pretty much, uh, you saw what happened in the war. Yeah. You know, yes, a, lo- a large part of the Syrian army defected. A large part of the Syrian army defected, but it's also the way that Syrian soldiers were treated by the opposition, by their former comrades, wasn't very pleasant either. Yes. On the individual level, Syrians are wonderful people. 
They really are. I mean, I could tell you so much wonderful things about Syrian society. And yet, on a societal level, we are pretty horrendous to to each other, to, to each other, and to and to, and to those that we that, that we don't like. Where does that come from, Abud? I have no idea. You ask me why is it that why is it that uh, I mean, no American soldier would act this way, no Canadian soldier would act this way, no Israeli soldier would act this way. You'd ask me why is it that Iraqi soldiers, the Iraqis, are so barbaric to each other? I mean, you think Syria is bad? Yeah. Just look at Iraq. Oh yeah. my God, Iraq is even worse. As bad as Syria is, the Iraqis are even worse to uh, to to uh, to each other. It's, it's horrendous. What is it that causes these societies to have such a, you know, such an absence of basic human decency? You know what? That is a question for the ages. That is that is a question that I just I don't know. I don't know how to answer. That is why I also started to to wonder and study. You know ask questions about Israeli society that's 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 when I start because this, this is this is this is this is what I this is what I want to want to understand how is it that the Israeli army despite all the pressures on it despite having to fight for its survival every single day is still more humane than any other army in the in, in, in the entire world right right so as far as the 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 rhetoric the stories that come out about how Israel teach, treats the Palestinians how do you digest <laughs> that how do you digest that stuff <laughs> Uh, well, the Palestinians should be, I mean, the Palestinians should know more than anybody else how Arabs treat other Arabs. Look what happened to the Palestinians in Jordan. How many Palestinians were killed in Jordan? They were pretty merciless towards them. Look what happened to the Palestinians in Lebanon. Yes. The massacres that were committed against them. You know, the 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 phalange and the and the Syrian army, you know, they, they, they were merciless towards, uh, towards uh, Pal- Pal- Palestinians. Look what happened to them to them there. You know, I mean, in uh, what other country except for Israel would tolerate all these repeated rocket attacks? If the Palestinians tried this kind of... Oh, can we swear on this podcast? You can swear or? as much as you like. If they had tried this kind of shit yeah. on Jordan or Egypt or Syria, imagine what the consequences would be. Yeah, imagine they would, they would the, raise imagine, them to the ground. Yes. Imagine the hell that would rain upon them. You know, but the Israelis, they have the Iron Dome and they, you know, they know that at any time they can come in and just wipe out Gaza, but they don't. They don't. That has been your episode of the Canadian Jewish Schmooze. Thank you so much for listening. Once again, I am Michael Freeman. And I'm Alex Rose. I edit and produce this podcast. If you enjoyed listening to Kol Avram, you can search for it. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, all of the good stuff. Is Pocket Cast real? Pocket Cast is real, actually. I've, that one. I've added Pocket Casts even to the CJN uh, website, where you can uh, listen to all of our podcasts at cjnews.com slash podcasts. And if you like our show, you can also search for the Canadian Jewish Moves. Leave us a, uh, a review. A five-star rating. A five-star rating or all that good stuff. Or you know what? Even just subscribe. If you're listening to this on cjnews.com and you like it and you want to get this automatically sent digitally to you every two weeks subscribe on apple podcast or wherever you get your podcasts uh, our intro music is by vanya juke our outro music is by lache swing david collin is our pro am marionettist and stay tuned for more great podcasts from the cjn podcast network we're launching another one united we snack by noah Liebtag, later this month thank you so much for listening until next time